Hello, and welcome back to the Lexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and core philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sarah Shavasva, and I'm your host. This week, we have with us Professor Katie Elliott, who is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Los Angeles. Hi, Professor Elliott. How are you today? I am doing great. It's very nice to be here, and I'm looking forward to hearing what I say. Of course. Uh, thank you for your time and for being here today. Before we begin our discussion, I wanted to ask you um, kind of how you got into philosophy, uh, what stood out to you, and what attracted you to the field? No, totally. That's a great question. Uh, so I started as a philosophy major uh, because I thought I wanted to go to law school. And I had heard that if you are thinking about some kind of pre-law major, philosophy is not a bad idea. Um, I took my first philosophy course, my first semester, it was an ancient philosophy class, I got a C. Uh, then later on in grad school, I also got very bad grades in ancient philosophy, so that was not a particularly auspicious start. Um, but once I stopped doing history of philosophy, I found that philosophy was something you could do without knowing very many facts. And since I was the kind of person who didn't know a lot of facts, that was pretty intriguing to me. And um, I just really sort of took to it. I liked it a lot. And so when I got through and it was time to think about applying to law schools, I thought I would apply to philosophy grad school just to see. And yeah, I've just kept doing it. Momentum has taken me this far. I keep waiting for someone to tell me to stop. And I mean, it's not like no one has told me to stop, but for the most part, it keeps going. So I'm sticking with it. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, it wasn't like, oh, ever since I was a little kid, I knew I wanted to be a philosopher. I didn't know that much about philosophy when I started in college. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know um, about philosophy. Like I heard many stories about how like people get into into school with a completely different major, then take a class of philosophy because it's like required or it's easy credits or something like that, and then they just get hooked. Um, so like it's yeah. kind of, it's pretty interesting to see that. Um, and yeah, definitely, I think I've heard of like philosophy majors as like pre law and like in like being pretty good for pre law because you get to explore like a lot of different things and kind of I guess ethics could be a really great question in law as well. Um, totally. But yeah, like. That's, that's definitely really, really interesting. Okay, so I wanna move on um, and kind of talk about your branch of expertise on metaphysics, um, which is like a really big topic. So I'm hoping that you can simplify this a little bit to our, our, our listeners. So Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest philosophers of the enlightened era has claimed that metaphysics is in a bottomless abyss and a dark ocean without a shore. And those are quotes. So what exactly is metaphysics? What are the central questions that you're interested in answering and exploring? And how does exploring these questions impact our world? Do those sound like compliments to you that Kant was, <laughs> maybe he was into like, you know, deep abysses and um, bottomless oceans without a shore. No, that sounds, that's very bleak and metaphorical and obscure. I certainly uh, will get over my skis if I try to talk about Kant. Um, but maybe at just a very large level of abstraction, metaphysics is a branch of philosophy. Try to use general philosophical tools to ask and answer questions about what kinds of things are in our world and what they're like. So that's like about as broad as a question could get. Um, but maybe just to give some examples. So Again, if you're doing metaphysics, you're thinking about what there is and what it's like. So is there a God, say? That's a classic metaphysical question. And if there's a God, what would God be like? Um, here's a very different question. What is truth? If I say a sentence is true, am I saying that there's a particular kind of relation between that sentence 
and the thing that makes it true. So thinking about the nature of truth is sort of one, one thing you might do as a metaphysician. Um, I work on kinds of things that science talks about or scientific theories sometimes talk about. So it's pretty common in a scientific theory to see a distinction between something's being true and something's being a law of nature. So I don't know if you've ever seen those um, bumper stickers that say the speed of light, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. Uh, that's a huge laugh line there. You can just edit in some kind of laughter at that point, just kidding. Uh, but what is a law of nature? What does it mean to say that something is a law of nature? Or scientific theories are very interested in distinguishing correlations from causation. What does it mean when we say a correlation isn't just due to pure noise, but is in fact a causal relationship? So I'm interested in what those kinds of things are. So very broadly, if you're doing some philosophy that talks about what kinds of things there are, what they're like, you're probably doing something that could be metaphysics, but as you can see, this is an enormously broad topic. Yeah, definitely. And you talked about um, kind of one, another one of your specializations or fields of specialization, which is like the philosophy of science. So how exactly uh, does the philosophy of science and like metaphysics interact, right? Cause like, for example, um, let's take gravity for, or I guess even like the speed of light, right? We were talking about that. Um, the speed of light is, is a law, as you mentioned, right? So would that mean that like, I guess philosophy of science is a branch of metaphysics or is it just that certain topics in the philosophy of science interact very well with metaphysical questions? Yeah, this is such a good question. And historically, uh, there's been lots of different answers to the kind of question about what we're doing when we're studying science and what we should be doing when we're studying science. So some philosophers who have studied science have been very skeptical of metaphysical questions and have thought that whatever they were doing was much more grounded in something like some kind of formal theorizing or some kind of epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. So maybe just interested in knowledge, but not really trying to use science to figure out what there is. The way that I think about the intersection between philosophy of science and metaphysics is that science um, is this kind of human inquiry that as human inquiry goes has been really successful. So you and I are talking on a computer, that's an enormously complicated thing that somehow we made and we made that thing thanks to a myriad of scientific breakthroughs. So we have this really successful kind of inquiry science. And I think you can, think about what the world is like and think about what knowledge is like and think about what methodology should be like by thinking about science. So when I think about the success of science, I think, well, for some reason, successful scientific theories distinguish between, as we, as we said, laws and things that are true or causes and correlations or mere probabilities and chance. What must the world be like for a discipline that makes those kinds of distinctions to be successful. So what does our world have to be like for scientific inquiry to actually work? You could also though ask epistemological questions uh, that would be under the you know, heading philosophy of science. So you could think to yourself, gee, we've got all this scientific knowledge. What is the acquisition of knowledge like such that it makes sense that we could have learned all this stuff from science? And then depending on who you are, you might think there's a kind of third sort of methodological, more slightly more pragmatic area where you think, okay, there's some really good methods of inquiry that are instantiated by science. Or you could think there are some really horrifically bad methods 
of inquiry that have been instantiated by science, especially if you're thinking about various injustices that have happened under the name of science. What methodological morals can we draw by looking at the history of science? So one of the things I really love about philosophy of science is I think there's many different angles, uh, there's many different kinds of philosophical morals you can extract from the apparent success of scientific inquiry, whatever that is. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. And I guess logically speaking, it would make sense because of how dominant or I guess how broad philosophy of science is. And so like there's a lot of questions to ask in that field. Right. Um, And they can interact with so many different domains of philosophy, I guess, um, because we're talking about how metaphysics is kind of almost in a way uh, talking about the construction of the world. I mean, I don't don't know if it's necessarily the construction of the world, but like like the nature of the world. Right. is there an intersection between metaphysics and pragmatics? So like what we should do um, and like how those things take place in the real world, or is it almost always at a theoretical lens? There's, there's as many uh, sort of gradations of answers to your questions as you'd like there to be. Um, right now, I think there's a trend in analytic metaphysics to try to take on questions that have more sort of real world impact. Um, so just to take an example, this past spring, I taught a course called Metaphysics of Science for the Social World, which looked at sort of traditional kinds of metaphysical questions, tried to give analyses to concepts, tried to think about what kinds of things answered those concepts. But instead of taking uh, core concepts from say chemistry or physics, we looked at core concepts from social science. So we read papers on what race is or what gender is. Um, We read papers on what disability is. And sometimes those questions intersect, not just with how, how we do in fact think about those things, but how we should think about those things. And so I think there's a growing trend. I mean, this isn't, I'm certainly not an expert in this field, but there's a sort of growing trend in contemporary metaphysics to try to do what the ethicists have managed to do, which is try to produce some knowledge that seems relevant to our everyday interaction with the world with varying degrees of success. It hasn't all been awesome. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's like, at least personally from, I guess this is, a student's perspective as well it seems that like that approach can be more beneficial in order to kind of spread the reach of of, of your research Absolutely. or whatever um because and this is something that like a lot of times there are critiques of i believe that in like in philosophy there's always like the armchair philosopher who's talking about very very uh, highly nuanced and theoretical objects or like kind of like processes and um oftentimes there's no intersection with what we can really do. Um, And so I feel like at least personally, like that intersection is really awesome to see and like kind of combining the theoretical and the pragmatic at that point, right? Um, Oh, totally. Um, And if I can just make a plug, Kevin Richardson, Mm -hmm. who was gonna come to my seminar and then I had a medical problem, couldn't do it. You guys can Google Kevin Richardson, who's doing really cool work exactly on this uh, intersection. Sally Haslinger is another big name in uh, this topic. But one reason to try to focus on philosophy of science is exactly to uh, address this kind of worry that you're gesturing at, which is like, look, if we're just sitting in this armchair, I don't even have an armchair. I guess I have some a little bit, can't quite see it, but I promise it's an armchair. Uh, focusing on questions that are grounded in successful scientific inquiry is supposed to be at least a step towards asking metaphysical questions 
that have answers that we can sort of uh, independently check uh, with, you know, by leaving our house occasionally. I mean, not that I would leave the house, but the scientists can leave their house and then come tell me stuff and then I'll talk. That makes sense. And I guess uh, on this like theory of like uh, philosophy of science as well. So what are some of the central questions that kind of get asked um, in like this branch of like philosophy of science? Is it kind of like, ways in which um kind of the future should move i know like you have like interest in like time travel could you like explain a little bit more and like what that kind of encapsulate and like encapsulates and like what that research kind of looks like yeah totally um so uh as with so many of these things even thinking about the philosophy of time you could think about that from sort of many different perspectives so one question really is just trying to understand uh, a relativistic understanding of time and space and thinking about what kinds of relativistic systems that are apparently consistent, not just consistent, but also physically possible. But my interest in um, time travel has to do a little bit with my interest in chances. So maybe here's a way of thinking about it. If you took something, let's pretend we have a genuinely indeterministic coin. It really has 50% heads, 50% tails. Okay, we're about to flip it. We don't know if it's gonna land heads or tails. It's 50-50. Okay, we flip it, it lands heads, fine. Now we have this chance event that's come to an end. So far, so good. Um, but what if instead of flipping it uh, forwards into the future, we flipped it into the time machine. So you can imagine the coin spinning and spinning and spinning as it travels back in time. Now it lands heads, but say it lands heads in the past. Uh, at the moment of the flip, the coin's gonna land heads or tails, but it's gonna land heads or tails in the past. In fact, we could have seen it already come through the time machine and land heads. So let's add that to our imagining. Let's say that you and I saw a time machine appear saw it spit out a coin that landed heads. And now we're about to flip the coin that's gonna go back in time and land heads. Is the coin 50-50 uh, or is the coin somehow determined to land heads on the ground that it's already landed heads in our past? That is not a practically important question, but it's a super interesting theoretical question, at least so say I. Um, because it helps us think about what the relationship is between chance and determinism um, in a way that breaks some of the standard ways that we think about them. So I like to think about time travel because I think it tells us cool stuff about chance, but other people like to think about time travel um, on its own right. So it seems like there's things that are sort of paradoxical involving time travel. Um, let me try to hum a few bars for you. So. Uh, What's something, something in your past that you would love to change? You don't, I don't mean to be too personal, we just met, but what's something not too personal in your past that you'd love to change? That's a really hard question. Um, <laughs> uh, let's say like not moving from Indiana to California, staying in Indiana. Okay, great. So you go back in time and you're like, look, the thing that I would like to change about my personal past is that, you know, we moved to California. That was terrible. I loved Indiana. Is that Hoosiers? I don't know. I can't remember. Okay. So I loved Indiana. I wanted to stay in Indiana. I'm going to go back in time and I'm going to convince my parents, say, to not move us from Indiana to California. If you go back in time and you're really dedicated to this project, it seems like it should be possible for you to convince your parents. 
they're reasonable people. You'll be there. You'll explain to them the whole time machine thing and they'll listen to you. You guys can stay in Indiana. So on the one hand, it seems like you can change the past if time travel were possible. But on the other hand, even as you're talking to your parents, you'll have your memory of having moved to California. In fact, it's already fixed that you moved to California. That's already happened. So from a different perspective, it seems like you can't change the, the fact that you moved to California. So which is it? Can you change the past with a time machine or can you not change the past with a time machine? That seems paradoxical, but if special relativity or general relativity or some kind of uh, philosophy of space-time tells us that time travel is possible, and time travel entails a contradiction, then maybe the physicists got it wrong because the physicists shouldn't be telling us that something is physically possible that implies contradictions. So there's cool sort of puzzles to think about with respect to time travel that don't have anything to do with chance. So why anyone would think about things that don't have to do with chance, you know, who knows? Yeah, yeah, of course. And I guess like, um, I'm wondering about like maybe it, some potential impact of what, what this could have in like the real world, right? Like, um, like these, <laughs> these thought experiments, right? That they're essentially just thought experiments of what would happen if you go back in time. Um, and what I'm thinking is just because you mentioned that in your classes you were talking about race, is like conceptions of race, uh, like over a period of time, like since the beginning and when those started, like how history could have been changed over a period of time. Like, is there any value in exploring questions like that? through like this time travel kind of um, viewpoint um, to kind of direct our resources to effective ways of maybe reducing some sort of violence or kind of correcting our wrongs, um, like almost like a way of introspection really. Do you think that's like valuable at all? Like, is this something that could happen? Is it like a unique area in philosophy or something like that? I would love to tell you and any potential future employers that thinking about time travel has insights for thinking about things as important as philosophy of race, but I don't think I can quite sell that. But I, I absolutely agree with you that there's a ton of value in thinking about history. Uh, what is that thing in the saying that goes, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it? I mean, certainly there are all kinds of massively important lessons having to do with horrific injustices that we should learn by thinking about history. But another sort of thing that you touched on that I think is really important is that often it feels very goofy to sit around and think about these thought experiments, but they often really do have value. So the little thought experiment we were just thinking about was trying to find a contradiction that would follow from the mere possibility of time travel. Physicists were genuinely worried about that when they were thinking about relativistic physics. And philosophers of race have all kinds of their own thought experiments to play with, to, to pull you know, genuine morals from. Um, and certainly the social sciences are related too. So uh, I'm, I'm pro thinking about history and I would love it if I could sell you on some kind of practical connection between my work and something as important as those topics, but I think it's a bit of a stretch. Okay, yeah, definitely. And I think philosophy is always about stretches, though. So um, hopefully we'll see. We'll <laughs> yeah, see. maybe your dissertation will do it. I will love <laughs> to read your time travel philosophy. Dissertation. That would be really, really interesting. Um, I kind of want to ask you about, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit so far, but on like chances and like your research in, in the field of chances. So 
you've written a paper called like, where are the chances? And I'm curious kind of about the question at hand that you're exploring. What exactly is determinism? What are chance processes? And what do can compatibilists say that incompatibilists would disagree with? These are all terms that you've mentioned in the paper. And I just want to clarify that for, for our viewers. Yeah, totally. So I wrote this kind of wonkish paper called Where Are the Chances? And the subject of that paper is a uh, debate among people who think about chances in the context of determinism. So diachronic determinism is roughly the thesis that a complete description of the world at a time combined with a complete account of the laws of nature would be uh, enough information if you could somehow process those things together. So maybe you'd have to be a super genius or maybe you'd have to be a supercomputer. But if you had a full specification of both the laws of nature and the world at a time, that would fix, that would settle, that would determine what the world is like at any other time. So you might think, you know, if the world were deterministic, one thing that would mean is that there's a sense in which it would be possible to know with certainty everything that was going to happen before it happened, if you had a complete description of the world at a time. Um, quantum mechanics is a scientific theory that on some interpretations is inconsistent with that deterministic thesis. On some interpretations, quantum mechanics tells us, no, if you had a complete description of the laws and a complete description of the world at a time, at best you'd be able to assign probabilities to various possible futures, but there wouldn't be any possible future that was uniquely determined. There would be multiple possible futures that were possible and you could assign probabilities to those, but you wouldn't know for certain which was going to occur. Um, for some philosophers, those probabilities that are assigned to each of those futures, those correspond to genuine objective features of the world called chances. And so what quantum mechanics is telling you say is that there's a certain chance that a future might be actual, but you don't know for certain, or you don't know with chance one, which of the futures will be actual. There's no fact of the matter at this stage. Um, if that's how you think about chances, then when people talk about ordinary probabilities in everyday life, you probably don't think that those probabilities correspond to real chances. So going back to our flipping the quarter case, um, if you uh, try to think about what the outcome of the flip of a quarter is going to be, and I say, hey, man, it's 50-50, you can't know for sure, you might start thinking, well, wait a second, if determinism is true, then in theory, I should be able to know with certainty whether the coin's going to land heads or the coin's going to land tails. Maybe if I knew the exact microphysical construction of the coin, Maybe if I knew the exact force and direction of the force, it's going to flip the coin. Maybe if I knew exactly how gravity was impacting the coin, what the wind conditions were. Now I start adding facts and facts and facts. And the deterministic thesis seems to suggest that there isn't really a 50-50 chance of the coin's landing heads, that that's actually just a probability that reflects our ignorance about what's going to happen in certain macrophysical situations. We don't know the full microphysical details, so we have to assign probabilities to various outcomes. But if determinism is true, we could program a supercomputer that would know the outcome of every possible coin flip before the coin flip happened. So if you sort of think along those lines, then you think that there can't be any chances in a world that's deterministic 
you know, what a chance is and what determinism is are things that just aren't compatible. So somebody who's an incompatibilist is somebody who thinks that the only chanciness that there would be to be found is ruled out by the thesis of diachronic determinism. Other philosophers, though, have argued that even if the world is fundamentally deterministic, so that a complete understanding of the microphysical structure of the world determines the microphysical future, even if that were true, there could still be genuine indeterminism, not at the microphysical level, but at some macro level. So many scientific theories use probabilities. It's not just quantum mechanics that uses probabilities. And maybe the probabilities of macro sciences, say the probabilities of thermodynamics or the probabilities of biology, maybe we should think of those as chances in the same way that we think of the probabilities or that some of us think of the probabilities of quantum mechanics as chances. So it's a bit of an in-house argument between people who think about chances about whether or not determinism is compatible with there being macrophysical chances, like the chance of the coin flip, or like the chance of some thermodynamic process coming to pass, or whether we should think that microphysical determinism rules out the possibility of there being genuine chances discovered by other kinds of sciences. I know, gripping so, stuff. <laughs> I mean, definitely like really interesting stuff, but I guess I'm kind of confused here on like the difference between chances and probability because you mentioned that sometimes we can consider like a probability to also be a chance but like aren't those the exact same thing like if you have a probability of something happening you also have a chance of something happening corresponding to that probability which is generically I guess in statistics like a percentage or like a decimal number or like a 0.75 or 75 percent chance of something happening also a 75 percent probability of something happening. So what exactly is that distinction? Yeah, great. So uh, very broadly, the category of probability is broader than the category of chance. So different people will make this move in different ways. But I like to think of probabilities as things that are mathematical or representational objects, things that satisfy the axioms of probability. And some of those mathematical objects describe things in the world that are chances. But not everything that satisfies the axioms of probability seems like it's a chance. So uh, let's, let's do an example. Um, do you think that JFK was assassinated by Oswald or do you think it was like a CIA conspiracy? Where, where do you land on the whole JFK thing? Probably Oswald. <laughs> Probably Oswald, right? In fact, Maybe we can even put a number on it if I asked you enough questions. You, where do you think you are on Oswald? Do you think you're above 50%, maybe 80, 90? Yeah, probably upwards, yeah. Yeah, let's put it around 90%. I feel like that's about where I am. So right now, if you ask me what the probability is that Oswald killed JFK, I'll say, eh, 90%. But I don't mean that right now, I think there's a genuine chance about what happened in the past I think that it's, it's fully settled and fixed whether or not Oswald killed JFK. When you and I are assigning a probability to that event, we're not describing some kind of genuine chances or indeterminism. Rather, we're expressing something about our epistemic attitude towards that. We're saying, maybe we're saying something about the kinds of betting odds we'd accept. Maybe we're doing something else, but whatever we're doing with that probability, we're trying to describe something about our subjective epistemic states. 
So probability is this kind of mathematical tool that's really powerful and can be used to represent lots and lots of different stuff. Um, we can also use probabilities to represent, say, percentages. Like I might say that this uh, delicious, oh, Better Booch, this is an advertisement for Better Booch. It's the best kombucha. Okay, I might say that this can is 30% full. But of course, that use of probability again, or that use of a percentage again, that use of that sort of mathematical object, that's not trying to describe a chance. Instead, it's trying to describe a different kind of physical feature. So modeling chances is one thing we can do with probabilities, but we can do lots of other things with probabilities too. Okay, that makes sense. And like, I guess that distinction uh, makes sense. But just to clarify as well, um, like statistics and I guess the probability research in statistics, uh, that directly correlates or at least helps in, in chance research as well, right? Like. Totally. You definitely rely. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So one thing we're doing with those probabilities that we study in statistics is we're trying to figure out uh, what the chances are, uh, what the real sort of chances are. So if I take a coin and I toss it a whole bunch of times and I make note of the number of times it's landed heads over the total number of times it's been flipped, that's going to give me a probability. Say we do it 10 times, seven times it comes up heads. I'll say this coin has landed heads 70% of the time. And then there's a further question I can ask. Is that 70%? Do we think that matches what the chance of the coin landing heads really is? Or do we think we need to flip the coin a few more times in order to come up with a probability that matches the chances? So statistics is a great example of an area where we're using lots of formal and empirical tools to get the probability values closer and closer and closer to what the genuine chances are by getting more and more information about the particular case at hand. Okay, that makes sense. And kind of going back to what you were explaining earlier and like this indeterminism and determinism kind of logic, it seems like these two, obviously you're kind of talking about how there's like problems within each of these cases, right? So there's almost like a need for like a new kind of theory for chances explanatory role. Um, like what is it? And like, I guess this is kind of talking about your theory. Um, and what does it mean for information about chances to serve the serve to explain the occurrence of an in event with information about laws and antecedent conditions explaining those chances? Um, and then is your theory compatible with uh, or inclined, I guess, with compatibilism or incompatibilism? Yeah, totally. So uh, going back to this question about determinism and chance and how those things are supposed to be related, as you and I have kind of danced around, chance is a bit of a prima facie mysterious thing out there in the world. It's a relatively new empirical discovery, if in fact we do think we've discovered chances. So there's some sort of conceptual issues about how to really understand what a chance is. And there's two predominant sort of schools of thought. One, uh, probably the most dominant school of thought is that we should understand chances in terms of their predictive roles. So the sort of core nature of a chance is it's the kind of thing where if you knew the chance of an event, that would tell you how confident to be that that event is going to happen. That is, it would tell you what you should be predicting about whether or not that event's gonna happen. So if I tell you there's a 70% chance of rain and I ask you how confident you should be in that it's going to rain, it seems like, well, if there's a 70% chance of rain, <laughs> I should be 70% confident that it's gonna rain. 
So one school of thought says, think, understand what a chance is in terms of its predictive role. But another role that chance plays, um, at least arguably that chance plays, is that it plays some kind of role in explaining outcomes. So going back to our coin, if you've got your coin and you've flipped it a thousand times and roughly half the times it landed heads and roughly half the times it landed tails, and you wanna know, gee, why is that? Why is it that this coin landed heads roughly half the time? Um, it seems very natural to point to the coin's chance of landing heads as part of the overall explanatory story for why the particular series occurred. So there are these two separate roles that chance might play. It might play this predictive role and it might play this explanatory role. And one thing that I'm interested in doing in my work is trying to combine these two roles into one. So the details don't really matter, but there's a kind of story that I uh, give about the explanatory role that chance plays. And one thing I'm hoping to do with that story is underwrite some of the predictive roles that chance plays. One thing that's a little wonky about my particular theory of chance's explanatory role is that I like to divide up um, typical physical explanations into kind of two pieces one explanatory piece that the chance does and one explanatory piece that laws and causes do. So going back to our assumption that the world is deterministic, if the world were deterministic, there's a certain sense in which everything that happens happens for the same reason, namely it had to. If the world's deterministic and say, I eat a sandwich, then it's not just true that I ate the sandwich, it's true that I had to eat the sandwich given the laws and the previous physical conditions. Analogously, I think in a world that's indeterministic, uh, when an event occurs by chance, instead of saying that the event happened because it had to, uh, we should say that the event happened because it had a particular chance of happening. But then when we back up and ask why the event had a particular chance of happening, then we can point to the laws of nature that governed those chances and we can point to the previous physical events that led to uh, the chance actually obtaining. So why did the coin land heads? Well, it had a 50% chance of landing heads. Why did the coin have a 50% chance of landing heads? Well, the laws are like this, and I flipped the coin like this, and the surrounding conditions were like this. So I'm trying to sort of break up uh, an explanatory role for laws and conditions to explain the chances and then the chances to explain chance outcomes. And the reason to do that is that it helps underwrite certain claims, important claims about the predictive nature of chance, but I won't bore you with all the details. Okay, I mean- Oh, that's... and you asked whether that should make us compatibilists or yeah. incompatibilists. Uh, I think a totally cool thing about my view is that it's neutral with respect to those two things but it does put uh, pride of place on the explanatory role of chance. So if you're the kind of person who thinks that the 50-50 chance of a coin landing heads really does explain the outcome, then I think, according to my view, you should be a compatibilist. You should think chance and determinism are compatible for some reasons. But if you're the kind of person who thinks the only genuine explanations happen at the microphysical level, then you should be an incompatibilist. You should think there aren't any chances in the macro world unless there are chances in the micro world. So okay, I yeah. can, whatever you want, I can satisfy you. 
that's that's good i mean i i think like kind of avoiding that debate is also pretty pretty cool because like (laughs) you you don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of like kind of defending your theory against these two i guess almost like powerful kind of concepts as a whole so like saying neutral is like pretty pretty good in in that regard um but that's a lot of philosophy so um (laughs) i guess like kind of to like move forward the conversation on maybe something that isn't uh super super kind of like philosophy heavy um, and maybe more pragmatic based um, for a lot of the younger like listeners on this podcast I'm curious in exploring um, how this like new view, view could be influential in understanding chances in the real world so for example we talked about like the coin flip but also or, like the weather but also how could it influence maybe larger things like the college admission cycle which um, or like landing a job many people attribute those things to be a product of both the individual's kind of resume or character but also largely due to luck and chance are there other examples that can be viewed through your theory and how can they be beneficial to us yeah i mean so um again i don't want to uh, give you the impression that there's too much practical important import to my work because then someone will watch this video and send me an angry email and i'll have to admit that they were right Um, But part of the motivation for trying to take um, compatibilism seriously, that is the view that there might be chances in the world other than microphysical chances, one reason to take that view seriously is the thought that there's genuine important explanations happening at non-fundamental sciences. So there's one kind of view of science where physics is king. And, oh, we do biology, we do thermodynamics, we do chemistry, we do those sciences because we're not smart enough or we don't have enough information to do the science where all the action is, fundamental physics. And the macro sciences are really just sort of shadows, poor shadows reflected up from what's really going on at the fundamental level. If you're somebody like me who's inclined to think that say biology or thermodynamics or other mature probabilistic sciences really do discover chances in the world, you're probably the kind of person who thinks that there are autonomous explanations happening in biology or happening in thermodynamics that don't owe their import just to uh, physics. It's not like physics is king and everything else is its shadow. If you're a compatibilist, you probably think that there are autonomous branches of science, all of which have an equal claim to discovering independent explanations of physical processes. So one kind of motivation for doing this kind of work is an attempt to make philosophy of science, not just philosophy of physics, but philosophy of science to take really seriously other branches of science. And that stretches out to the social sciences. So I'm, while there's all kinds of critiques of social science that I think are important, I think there's lots of really important empirical work that happens that's about people and about societies and that can have the same kind of rigor and import as say physics. Uh, And I'm very interested in trying to understand not just what our physical theories tell us about the world, but also what our more social empirical theories tell us about the world. So big ups for all the sciences, not just the the physics-y ones. Yeah, I mean, that, that like makes sense. And I guess it can, I don't know, I've had like a lot of discussions with some of my friends about how like almost everything kind of reduces down to like physics at like a fundamental level, um, which I guess, you know, because you explore metaphysics, I, I'm sure you can probably kind of tell like that a lot of things are almost physical questions, like physics que- related questions. Um, but yeah, definitely like a lot of importance to all the other sciences as well. And 
kind of on the same track of tailoring towards uh, the young audience who's listening to this podcast, I wanted to ask um, kind of about teaching philosophy. So um, a lot of students actually are kind of, I don't want to say scared to embrace philosophy or explore philosophy, but they're just not aware of what it might look like. And so oftentimes when people say philosophy, again, you think of that armchair philosopher or you think of, oh, we're going to talk about these abstract life-changing questions or something like that. Kind of like, what is the purpose of life or something like that? And that's not always true. Sure, some classes you might explore those questions, but it's not always true. So I want to ask um, kind of what exactly do you teach in your philosophy classes? I mean, you don't have to teach about, like talk about everyone that you've taught, but like kind of what are the central aspects that professors try to teach students? Is it kind of just giving them a lot of readings? Is it discussion-based? Um, how do you guys like engage the entirety of the students? Is it like intensive? And like, what are some of the stigmas that maybe you have seen as a professor um, in the field of philosophy or about yeah, absolutely. Philosophy? I mean, I think, I think the number one thing that I would like your viewership to know is that philosophy is for everybody. And I don't just mean that in some non-practical sense. Philosophy is a really good major. If you're thinking about, I mean, I think there's this like, I feel like when I was a kid and I went to college, there was like a joke about like, oh, what are you gonna do with your philosophy degree? I guess you're gonna work at McDonald's. And I did work at McDonald's, but it was completely independent of the fact that I was a philosophy major. Um, philosophy, even if you don't go on to pursue philosophy at the graduate level or become a professor, at a, at a very high level of abstraction, what your philosophy classes should be about, I think, or at least one thing they should be about is thinking clearly and carefully and with an open but critical mind about a broad range of topics. You also hopefully in a philosophy class will learn to write clearly in an analytic style. You'll hopefully learn to have controversial conversations and debates with people in a respectful but productive way. There's a certain style and method uh, to thinking philosophically that I think is really, really helpful in a broad range of careers. So it used to be that, um, you know, philosophy, maybe it still is, is thought of as a kind of uh, niche major that you'd only do if you sort of, you know, didn't have to worry about money or didn't have to worry about getting a job later on or weren't worried about pleasing your parents. But in fact, I think it's a kind of humanities major that really prepares you well for a broad range of future employment. So uh, it would be great to have uh, a wide range of different kinds of people who are really interested in philosophy. And as you can see from our conversation, almost any topic that you're passionate about can be turned into some kind of philosophical question. So if you're the kind of person who really likes to think about issues from a couple of different sides, even if you're more interested in STEM topics, you can find some cool philosophy classes. Or if you're more interested in value topics, if you're interested in ethics, or if you're interested in law, or if you're interested in politics, getting a philosophy major, that's also gonna be really helpful. Um, lots of people are poli-sci philosophy double majors, for instance. Again, what you're gonna learn, even if the particular topics, I mean, nobody's gonna get a job at the chance factory or whatever. So even if the particular subjects aren't what you go on to pursue later on in life, hopefully the mode of thinking and the mode of expression will be something that you can take in lots of different areas. So just speaking for myself as a professor, 
um, at the undergraduate level, especially for non-majors, it's more important to me to model a kind of inquiry than it is to have my students sort of memorize all the facts. Um, often I don't care that much about say, I mean, this is, this is not everyone's approach and maybe there's bad things about this approach, but I'm not particularly interested in the philosophers or the particular historical context of the ideas we're dealing with. I'm trying to update the historical context of the ideas we're working with. I'm trying to make everybody in the class engage with the questions. And so we're not as interested in memorization, say, or in uh, thinking about history in the way that a historian would, but instead really trying to get my students to engage critically with all the topics under discussion with the hopes that they'll learn some tools for taking on critical inquiry later on in life. So that's what I would hope for. Take a philosophy class. It could be about anything and see if you like the way of thinking. If you like that way of thinking, don't think getting a, you know, a BA in philosophy means that you won't be employable. In fact, you'll probably learn a lot of really important skills that will help you in lots of different areas. Yeah, and I agree. And I think uh, maybe like some something that's powerful in philosophy as well is that the intersectionality that comes with it, because literally every single field uh, has some sort of philosophy. And like, I, like for example, like uh, philosophy of mind is the intersection between psychology, computation, even neuroscience and, and philosophy. So there's a lot yeah. of different aspects um, like associated. That's a philosopher, with by the way. This is Michaela McSweeney, another philosopher. Hello. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like there's, there's a lot of in, like, kind of intersectionality within um, the like philosophy and like all these different branches. So like, I don't think there's like ever, I mean, like whenever I hear like all of these like rumors about psychology or like about philosophy, it kind of, um, it, it kind of like irks me a little bit. Cause it's like, no, like you, you kind of just don't know it yet. Um, I'm sure you'll it, hopefully- It's up to every generation too. I mean, philosophy has changed so much just since I've been in philosophy, the kinds of breadth of topics and focus of topics have changed. So if you're a young person who's sort of interested in the way philosophy uh, philosophers think, but you don't think they're thinking about the right topics, well, good news, you can be the very person to change that. Come take our classes, come tell us what we should be thinking about. Uh, part of what's cool about philosophy is that philosophy likes to think about itself too. So philosophy is constantly evolving. What are taken as the core topics are constantly evolving. And there can be a revolution of young people who bring on whatever questions they think deserve attention. So just because the generation above you thought about one type of question doesn't mean that that's essential to what philosophy is. Philosophy can be what you guys make it. Exactly. And kind of like to wrap this, this uh, conversation up, I want to ask you what you're doing now um, and what your research is focused on now. So people who may be interested in your research can kind of follow up and see what you're doing. Yeah, totally. Um, the thing that I'm working on now that I'm most excited about, well, so I have a book manuscript that I've been working on for a while having to do with the stuff about chance that we talked about. Um, but I'm working on a project having to do with machine learning right now with a uh, a former student of mine, Professor Gabby Johnson at Claremont McKenna. She's super interesting. Her work is super interesting. And we're trying to write a paper about how to think about whether machine learning programs instantiate biases and the kinds of biases they might instantiate. So there's been a lot of talk and interest recently in trying to understand um, some of the downsides of using machine learning. Uh, to do a wide variety of things from targeting ads to governing uh, certain kinds of police enforcement. And we're interested in taking 
old sort of philosophy of science questions, updating them and asking them about them in a new context um, that machine learning presents. So if you are interested in machine learning um, and that's the kind of thing you want to read about, come to my website or go to Gabby's website or shoot me an email. Uh, that's a good example of a totally new topic in the philosophy of science that also has you know, genuine practical import and of course reaches out to value and political theory as well. Uh, and I'll put both of those links uh, kind of in the description. So anyone who's interested in yep. can check those out. Um, that about wraps up our discussion today. Thank you so much, Dr. Elliot, um, for kind of the discussion and talking about everything um, from chances, talking about time travel, um, like and, and kind of like about philosophy as a whole. I learned a lot and I'm sure everyone who's listening did as well. So thank you. Uh, it was great talking to you. You're really fun to talk to. And I really appreciate that this thing exists and that you had me on. It's such a cool thing.